Revelation chapter 20, if you have your Bible, I was thinking when we sang that last song, um, I used to enjoy watching on Sunday mornings a little bit of the First Baptist Church in Jacksonville, a little bit of their service. I've always liked Homer Lindsay and Jerry Vines and Mike Brunson, but there was a plaque on the front side of their stage um, in front of the pulpit that said, Sirs, we would see Jesus. We would see Jesus. And that's what church is all about. That's, that's why we gather here on Sunday morning, so that we might learn of him and grow in him, come to him in faith and, and trust him with our lives. And, um, you know, I, in, the, in the book of Acts, when they saw the things that Peter and John and the other apostles were able to do and the transformation that had taken place in their life, um, in fact, the Bible said that they couldn't, those that wanted to, to um, have them thrown in jail and shut them up said that the good stuff, the good works, the things that were flowing out of their lives, um, you know, said they couldn't deny that. It was undeniable. And, um, and the Bible said that they took note of them that they had been with Jesus. They took note of them that they had been with Jesus. So listen to me this morning. If you, if you can see him and hear him and touch him and feel him and know him, and grow in him, and take that with you outside the doors of these church, the world will take notice that you've been with Jesus. They'll take notice that there's something different in your life that's not in their life, and you'll leave them um, thirsting and hungering for that that you have, which is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And I pray that you do that. Um, I'm going to do this a little different this morning than I normally do. I'm going to read it a little bit at a time and kind of preach it as I go. And I'm, I, I'm just going to be straightforward with you from the get-go. I really just wanted to skip this passage. And my intention was just to go right to the great white throne judgment. And then the next week try to cover that section, the last section about heaven, um, chapters 21 and 22. Um, but the Lord wouldn't let me. I just, felt, I just felt like this is a passage of scripture that I cannot preach over. And I'll go ahead and tell you the subject matter is the millennial reign of Christ and his church. The millennial reign or the 1,000 year reign of Christ and his church. Now, um, why do I preach this? It is in the Bible, number one. All right. If it's in the Bible, it ought to be preached. If it's in the Bible, it's worth knowing something about. Um. The second reason I believe we ought to preach it is because it is in the Bible. I think it's hidden in a lot of places in the Bible. Um, and this, this little, these short ten verses that, that begin Revelation chapter 20 kind of opens the veil on a whole bunch of other scriptures that we would not understand otherwise. There were a whole lot of promises made to Israel that have never been fulfilled. A whole lot of them. I mean, there are books in the Bible that are dedicated to promises that God made for Israel's restoration. And I get that we have seen Israel moderately restored several times, but the restorations that the Scripture point to about Israel have never been fulfilled, but I believe they will. Israel's not yet been grafted back into the vine, but I believe they will. And so we can't, unless you understand this particular portion of Scripture, there's a whole bunch in the Old Testament especially um, that won't make any sense. There's some of the promises even that Jesus made to the apostles. I mean, he told the apostles, I'm going to set you on 12 thrones to govern the tribes of Israel. What's that about? It's about the millennial kingdom. That's what it's about. And so... Um, it's in the Bible. You, you, if you don't know anything about it, large portions of the Bible ain't never going to make any sense to you. 
And, and the third reason is, um, is, is because it's, it has to do with our future. It has to do with part of the reward that God gives to his saints, the church, because it ain't just Christ that is ruling and reigning for a thousand years. It is the saints who rule and reign with him on earth for a thousand years. And, and we've, we've come too far in Revelation to quit. We've, we've come too far to leave out this part of the story. I know we went through the tribulation very quickly. My reasoning for that is I hope nobody in this room lives through the tribulation. I hope, I hope the rapture is true and we all get to get, go home. I breeze through it because I don't know that you can know uh, everything that's going to take place in that. <clears throat> but if you leave off the end of the story, a lot of times you've missed the whole point of the story. Would you agree to that? If you read, if there's a 20-chapter book and you read 19 chapters, you probably miss the most important part. And so we're going to cover the last part. We're going to cover the end of the story. We're going to see how time comes to an end in this chapter. Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 10 is probably some of the most disputed and controversial um, verses in all of God's Word. Some people say it's all symbolic. Some people say it's all past, that the symbolism was wrapped up in Titus' overthrow of Jerusalem. The whole, in fact, they say the whole book of Revelation is about something that's past. Um, some say that it is occurring, this, these ten verses, that this is occurring right now. And some, like me, believe that it's future. Now, I'm, I'm going to hit this real quick, and then we're going to dive right into the text, all right? <clears throat> I certainly don't want to confuse you when you talk about the millennial reign of Christ. But it will help you. If you study the book of Revelation on your own, you read it, it will help you. It helped me tremendously just to read the book of, of Revelation like it's chronological, that it falls in order. And I think the outline in Revelation 1-9 tells us that, right? The things which you have seen, the things which are, things which shall be hereafter. <clears throat> and several times you see the words in Revelation which says, and after this, and after this, and after this, that there is a chain of events occurring. And so... Um, now, there's a couple of parenthetical chapters, I agree, that don't advance the chronology. It's just kind of telling us what's going on behind the scenes. But I believe Revelation is, chron is chronological. And after the church age, I believe that there's going to be a rapture. And I believe that after that rapture, at some point, there's going to be a great tribulation. And after that great tribulation, I believe that Christ is going to rule and reign with his saints on the earth for a thousand years. That is premillennialism. If you look at, if you look at um, the terminology of millennialism... Premillennialism is that the second coming of, of Christ occurs at the end of the Great Tribulation and is, is immediately before it. It's pre-millennial. He comes back before his millennial kingdom. Um, amillennialism, and, and there are variations of every one of these, and I'm not going to get out there into all those variations. I don't even know what all of them are. All right? There's a lot of different interpretations of this. Amillennialism, ah literally means no um, that there is no millennial kingdom. That that <clears throat> essentially what happens is there's no thousand year reign. It's purely symbolic. It's just a number ex to express a long period of time. Um, it is not a literal physical reign at all. It is a spiritual reign, and it began when Christ came the first time and established His kingdom in, in the hearts of man. That's all millennium. There's no literal actual one thousand year reign of Christ and His saints. Um, on the earth. It is spiritual and it's already started because Christ's kingdom has come to us now, which is true in that sense. But postmillennialism, and I don't know very many people, the two primary camps are premillennial, amillennial. I don't really know. I'm sure there's some out there, but I've never really met anybody that considered themselves to be a postmillennial. 
they, they again say that the 1,000 years is purely symbolic and their understanding of this is that the church will experience continuous growth and will have a golden age of growth where they literally, um, they, and this was popular when the Roman Empire was, um, became Christianized. That was when this became popular. But that the church would eventually evangelize the whole world. Most of the world would come to Christ and his kingdom would fill the earth and then Christ would return to rule and reign over it. And, and so th- th- those are the three camps. But, but what I believe is the first one. <laughs> what I believe the Bible teaches and what is the easiest for me to understand, taking a literal interpretation of Scripture, is that the church is going to be raptured or, or resur- raptured and resurrected prior to the tribulation and after seven years of hell coming to earth in the tribulation, um, Christ is going to return with his saints. He's going to wipe out wickedness. He's going to destroy unbelievers and after that second coming Christ will literally physically with his church rule and reign on earth for 1,000 years now this ain't preached a lot so a lot of it's going to seem strange to you this morning but 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 six times in in verse 2 verse 3 verse 4 verse 5 verse 6 and verse 7 the word used is 1,000 years and you look it up and 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 it means a thousand years it means 1,000. That's what the word means. And so let's read those first three verses and see of, of this millennial reign of Christ in this church. Revelation 20, verse 1. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and, and Satan, and bound him a 1,000 years and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little or a short season. So the millennial reign of Christ and his church begins with the binding of Satan. The binding of Satan. Now, I, I don't know. what John is, John is seeing a lot of things I understand that are, that are symbolic. I don't know that there is an actual... Um, a big chain um, with a key to it. But what John saw, um, but, but the result of that, I believe, is literal. Whether you take all those things as being literal or symbolic, what happened to Satan is that he is bound to the point that he cannot deceive the nations of the earth anymore. So he, he's powerless. If you look at this passage of Scripture, Jesus comes again, and, and all of a sudden, Satan has absolutely no power whatsoever, and he is completely overcome by Christ. Now, think about that for a minute. I don't believe the earth is billions of years old. I'm not, you, you know me. Um, you know, we, we can talk about it if you want to, but you'll never convince me that the earth is any older than the Bible says it is. And so I believe you, at best you might get away with 10,000 years, but you've got 6,000 years of recorded history in the Word of God. That's how old I believe the earth is. Um, and, and for 6,000 years, I don't know how long it took for, for Adam and Eve to, to be deceived, but they obviously didn't have any children before their deception, so it wasn't long into their journey um, in paradise, the paradise that God had given them, that they, they had everything they needed, that Satan entered the picture and deceived them. Um, actually, Eve was deceived. Adam went into it with his eyes wide open. He made a willful choice to rebel against God and his plan. And for the next 6,000 years, Satan has created havoc and destruction for man and creation. You look all around. You want, everything that's wrong with the world is a result of that fall into sin. 
even all the sicknesses that we have, um, ultimately you can trace them all back to that root when Satan brought its destruction into this world. What God set them into was perfection. What God created for them was perfection. And what Satan brought was havoc and chaos and destruction uh, and death. And, and when you look at Satan and how he has done that on earth, the last seven years of this earth's history that we call the Great Tribulation, is the, it appears to be the pinnacle of his success. Because if you look at Revelation, especially chapter 13 and 14, the Bible says that the dragon, who is Satan, gives his power to the beast, who is Antichrist. And then you've got the false prophet, who is the religious leader of the day. And so you've got an unholy trinity there, Satan being the unholy father and the Antichrist being the unholy son. And, and the false prophet being the unholy spirit. You've got a counterfeit there of the Godhead. And they have great success. The Bible says that the people of the earth worship the beast, uh, the Antichrist, and they worship the dragon who gave power to the beast. So in, this, in the tribulation, especially those first three and a half years, uh, it looks like Satan has, has reached the, the, the epic, the pinnacle, the peak of his success uh, on this planet, and then Jesus comes back. And it's over. I mean, Satan got the whole world under his, under his spell. And, 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 is, and is persecuting and destroying every believer that he can find until Jesus comes back. And so I want to say to you this morning, Satan is a powerful adversary for us. I don't think that you ought ever underestimate the power of Satan to deceive. But he's no match for Jesus. None. However powerful he might be to us, when he comes face to face with omnipotence, he is powerless. And by the way, do you know why the Bible says that sin has no power over us today, is because Christ reigns within His church. He's already reigning in the hearts of the believer. The penalty for sin has been paid. The power of sin has been broken. And He will one day deliver us from that presence of sin. But Jesus lives in us. That's why the Bible says, Greater is He that is in you than he that is in the world. Satan is powerless. At the end of the tribulation, he is, he is, he is powerless. And then his predicament is this. I, I love the words. The Bible said that that angel laid hold on him, bound him, cast him in two, shut him up, and sealed him. <laughs> Listen, he ain't going nowhere. I, I, I don't know how many more words you need to describe what happened to the devil, but he literally is in this place where he has absolutely zero influence in this world. He's bound in a pit, a bottomless pit, an abyss. He is there uh, able, to do, able to deceive the nations no more until that thousand years has finished. I'm going to read to you a passage, and this is one of those passages that you're not going to be able to understand unless you understand the millennial kingdom. Um, Isaiah chapter 24 paints a, a little short, brief picture of the tribulation. And then you get to verse 21. And it says, and it shall come to pass in that day. In that day is another one of those phrases um, that, that, that many, many times in Scripture means the day that the Lord returns, the second coming. And so Jesus came in Revelation chapter 19. 
wage war against the wicked of the earth. And in, in chapter 20, he lays hold on Satan. It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall punish the host of the high ones that are on high and the kings of the earth upon the earth. And they shall be gathered together as prisoners are gathered in the pit and shall be shut up in the prison and after many days shall they be visited. Then the moon shall be confounded, the sun ashamed, when the Lord of hosts shall reign in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before his ancients, that's before his elders, Gloriously, There's you another little tidbit of the millennial kingdom right there. But that not only says that Satan is bound, but that all those high ones, all those principalities, all those powers, all um, those, the, those workers of darkness, all of that spiritual wickedness in high places, what I believe that means is that not only is Satan powerless, not only is he bound up in that pit, but all of those demonic uh, cohorts of his um, the whole hierarchy of the demonic rim are bound up there with him so what happens then is that for 1000 years you have undisputed and undefiled truth on the earth in the person of Christ there will be no deception there will be no sin you get that picture y'all listen <laughs> this earth right now is full of deception. I mean, it's, it, it is getting increasingly difficult every day for us to ascertain what is true and what is not. Can you imagine a world where all deception has been bound and shut up in a pit for a thousand years? And you've got the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And that everything that he says is truth. And there will be no deception on the earth for a thousand years. Undefiled, undisputed truth rules and reigns in the person of Christ. So that's how it begins. Satan bound up. Read with me those next three verses. It also involves a resurrection of saints and a reign of saints. We're going to dig in this reign business a little bit more. I saw thrones. Those are authoritative places. And they sat upon them. And judgment was given unto them. Now I believe that probably is a direct reference to the apostles who Jesus had promised that he would give authority to to rule and reign over the nation of Israel. Verse, and it continues, And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. So these are people who lived through the tribulation um, or who died in the tribulation but who did not worship the beast. The Bible said they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Verse 5, But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So let me clarify something first. There are two resurrections in Scripture. Two different times, or two different resurrections that are going to occur. Now, the, 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 if you look at John chapter 5, Dean, you got it, I won't turn there. I'll save his time. Jesus said this in John chapter 5. He said, there's more here, but I'm just going to focus on this one part. Uh, because he did talk about a spiritual resurrection where people are saved. 
But this is talking about a physical resurrection. This is talking about the resurrection of the body. He said, Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice. All that are in the grave shall hear his voice. And they shall come forth, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. So there are two resurrections that are going to occur. The the, the resurrection of the just, that's the saved, and the resurrection of the unjust, that's those who are lost. And so the first resurrection is for the saved. And I know this can get a little bit confusing, but, but it's not that confusing. If you just consider this for a minute, Jesus is going to resurrect all the saved people first, but that has come in stages. Jesus, the Bible called him the first fruits. Did you know that there were some Old Testament saints that were resurrected on the same day Jesus was? The Bible records it in Matthew's Gospel and that on that same day when that earthquake hit, the graves were open and, and some of those Old Testament believers that had died putting their faith in that promise of the Messiah rose from the dead and showed themselves. They went into the city and showed themselves. Now, I don't know where they went from there. I guess they ascended with Jesus when he left or sometime soon thereafter. But, it, it, but there was another resurrection. And then you've got the resurrection that comes with the rapture of the church. Um, that is before the tribulation. That is when uh, all of those, the, the, Paul made it clear in, 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 the book, in Thessalonians um, that, that not everybody's going to die. We're not all going to sleep, but we're all going to be changed. Um, and that those of us who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord are not going to precede those which are asleep or those that are in the grave um, because the trumpet's going to sound, the voice of the archangel's going to shout, uh, and the dead in Christ, those who died in Christ, are going to rise first, and then we which are alive and remain are going to be called up together with them to meet the Lord in the air, and, and, and we'll forever be with the Lord. So there's a resurrection that occurs before the tribulation. And then there's a resurrection that occurs after the tribulation, which I believe is the, is the resurrection of all the Old Testament saints and all of the tribulation martyrs, those who died during the tribulation because of their faith in Christ. You, you see a picture of that. I think it's in Revelation chapter um, 6 when um, it's the fifth the fifth seal is broken, the souls of them under the altar who gave their life during the tribulation for the cause of Christ. So, here, here's what I want you to understand about the first resurrection. That, that came in stages. Is that every person in every stage of the first resurrection, from Christ until the end of the tribulation. Every person in every stage of the first resurrection has eternal life. They are immortally secure. They never die again. They're saints forevermore. The second death has no power over them. They can't mess that up. They have trusted Christ. They have been... The the redemption of Christ in them has been absolutely, fully, totally completed. They have been resurrected in spirit when they were justified. They have been resurrected in soul when they were sanctified. And now they have been resurrected in, uh, in body, so they're glorified. They're, they're immortally and eternally secure in that. But the second resurrection, or what was what, better, what's more appropriately a um, called the final resurrection because if you look at the first resurrection coming in stages, you'll you'll like no that's one, that's two, that's three, that's four. Um, but I would I would call all of those that are saved the first resurrection, and all of those that are lost 
the final resurrection. And it doesn't come in stages. It comes all at one time. It comes after the 1,000 year reign of Christ. And we'll read about it next week when we talk about the great white throne judgment. Everybody, all the dead, small and great. From the beginning of time until then. Everybody whose name was not found written in the book of life. This is the resurrection. This is when men are going to stand before God in their bodies and give an account for their rebellion and rejection of Christ. And so, and so um, the end result of that is that they all die again. The second death. What is the second death? It is when a man dies spiritually, a man dies um, soulfully, and a man dies physically for all eternity. It's hell. It's torment. That's how, the, that's how this chapter is going to end. We'll get to that next week. Every person in the final resurrection experiences eternal death. For the wages of sin is death. They got what they worked for. They got what they asked for, which is hell's torment. So it involves resurrection, both part of the first resurrection and at the end of the thousand years, all of the final resurrection, and then the great white throne judgment is set after that. But it also involves the reign of the saints. Now, this is where this is where people we get you can get really bogged down, you can get really confused. But I'm gonna be as simple as I can be. The reign of the saints. We we get the fact that Jesus reigns. All right, He's King of Kings, Lord of Lords. He rules and reigns forever. But several times in this passage, you see that He not only had Himself ruling and reigning, but the saints ruling and reigning with Him. Kings. Priest, thrones, judgment was given unto them. What's all that about? This is the reign of the church, the reign of the saints. It is under Christ's authority. He's ultimate ruler. Um, it, is, it is with Christ's authority. He appoints us. I think this is part of the reward. The Bible said, remember that parable Jesus said? He that had been faithful in much, I'll make him ruler over much. I'll give him much. And he said, because you've been faithful in this, I'll make you ruler over ten cities. You've been faithful in this, I'll make you ruler over five. You've not been faithful in this, I'm going to take what's been given to you and give it to the one with ten. It's a judgment of reward that takes place. And I believe a great deal of that is, it has to do with what happens during the millennial kingdom. So it is under Christ's authority. It is with Christ's authority. It is over all of his creation, which is what God gave to Adam in the garden, dominion over his creation, to make it something that brings God glory, to be fruitful and multiply in it. So it is over the creation and it is over the believers who survive the tribulation. Most of them will be Jews. Because God's still got some promises for the Jews. And they miss Jesus the first time, they won't miss him the second time. And many of those Jews will be saved during the tribulation. And Jesus, this is all those passages of Scripture that Jesus said, when you see these things happen... When you see the abomination that makes desolate, specifically in the temple, where that's where Satan declares himself, the Antichrist declares himself to be God and demands to be worshipped. Jesus told his people, the Jewish people, to flee. To go hide themselves in the wilderness because there's about to be wrath on this earth like the world has never seen. And they were going to be the subject of that wrath. You can read it all through the tribulation. But some people are, some people are going to put their faith in Christ in the tribulation. I believe it will primarily be Jews the other people that I think it might be are people that have never heard the opportunity, to, never had the opportunity to hear the gospel. Jesus' grace is going to appear to all men. The kingdom is going to be preached in all of the world. Then the end is going to come. But we rule under with Christ's authority over all creation and over those tribulation survivors, all of whom are 
believers. And, 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 and I know this almost sounds like science fiction, but I believe this is Bible. Those people, those believers, are going to repopulate and rebuild this earth that was destroyed by the tribulation for the glory of God. Um, I don't have time to dig into this, and I'm not going to, but I think they still are going to possess free will. They're still going to have the ability to, to trust, love, and obey, or to doubt, hate, and rebel. But what they're going to see is perfect government, perfect truth, no deception. And I think that will be few and far between who choose that during that thousand-year reign. Um, there are some Old Testament passages, and I'm not going to take you to them, but that if there is any sin that arises during that millennial reign, it's dealt with quickly and decisively because you've got the judgment of Christ sitting on his throne. So this is going to be a time of unprecedented. You, 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 a world wants to know what a utopia looks like. The thousand-year reign is going to look like that. Justice will be meted out immediately. Not going to be any question about it. Not going to have to put it before a panel of jurors. You've got the one who is righteous and perfect in all of his judgment sitting upon the throne and his saints ruling and reigning with him and under his authority. So that raises a lot of questions, don't it? And I'm going to tell you I don't have a bunch of answers. <laughs> But what I believe is that during the millennial kingdom, there are going to be mortals who believe dwelling underneath the perfect government of the immortal Christ and his church. And then we're going to see how it ends. And deception, rebellion, and destruction. Look with me at verse 7. When the thousand years were expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven. And devoured them. Now I know you're going, to read, you're going to have some people that tell you that's the battle of Armageddon. That's not the battle of Armageddon. The battle of Armageddon happens during tribulation. This happens at the end of the thousand year reign. This is not even a battle. This is Satan going to the ends of the earth to deceive those that are living on it. And they gather themselves together against God. And the fire of God devours them. And verse 10 says, And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast, that's the Antichrist, and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. Listen to me, the devil is not in charge of hell. The devil's not in charge of hell. All the devil's trying to do is populate hell, because that's where he's going. The Bible says he's tormented in hell. It doesn't say that he torments in hell. It says he is tormented in hell. Your, uh, an allegiance to the devil ain't going to buy you nothing but time with him in the lake of fire for all eternity. It don't give you authority with him. It don't give you power with him. It don't, it, 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 it's, it's not going to make you a prince in his dominion. It's not going to bring you anything but the same thing that it brings him. 
So it ends in deception, rebellion, and destruction. In fact, if you, if you look at it really close between 20, chapter 20, verse 6, and chapter 20, verse 7, there's a thousand years. There's a thousand years of perfect rule, of perfect peace, of perfect joy, of perfect righteousness, of perfect justice. Isaiah chapter 11, go read the whole chapter. I mean, this is the chapter that tells you that the, that the, that the lion is going to lay down with a lamb and that a child is going to play on a hole of a deadly serpent and it's not going to harm him. Um, and, and peace is going to reign and fields are going to be fruitful. Isaiah chapter 11 paints a beautiful picture of what this time on earth is going to look like and Isaiah 11 9 kind of summarizes it and says this they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea that's the millennial kingdom the earth ain't never seen a time like that but it will when when Christ is ruling and reigning for a thousand years with his church And then Satan is released for a short season. And, and, and this is incredible to me and shameful to me at the same time that what does he find in, in, a, in a world that has been governed by perfect justice and righteousness and truth? He finds men willing and ready to rebel against the reign of Christ. Why would God permit such an ending? Why does it have to come down to that? I mean, why can't we just go from why can't we just go from tribulation, second coming, eternity? Why this thousand year reign of Christ on the earth with his saints? Well, I can't, tell you that, I can't tell you definitively what the answer to that is, but I'm got, I've got some speculations, and I, not that I created these, but I've read about this subject for years and years and years and studied it and looked at all these passages of Scripture. And, and I, I, I will probably never do that in a teaching study because I can get you more confused than you probably already are because I get myself confused studying it sometimes. I don't know that we're ever going to understand all of it until we're living in it. And then we'll know. But there are three reasons, I believe, why God would, call, would permit such an ending as this before eternity begins. The first reason is this, to reveal Satan's irredeemable evil. Satan is the original sinner. Um, Mitch has got some teachings on this that you need to look up. Satan is the original rebel. God created Satan in perfection. You read the description of Satan before his fall? He, he, was like, he was the anointed cherub who covers. He was the one who literally guarded the throne of God and led the heaven's choir. And then he got lifted up with pride and became the original rebel against God. You know, and I, I, I thought about this years, especially when I was first saved. Why can't the angels be saved? If we can be saved, why can't they be saved? Because Satan's irredeemably wicked. Now, you've got to understand what's happened here. He spent a thousand years bound, shut up, sealed, powerless in that awful predicament for a thousand years. He ain't nobody in this universe knows the power and glory and eternal nature of God better than Satan knows it. The Bible says that he was with 
he was with God in the garden that he, before anything else was created, Satan watched it. He knows. But he is eternally bent on being exalted above God. He is eternally determined to be God. Satan will never be saved, nor will those demonic cohorts, because they know and refuse to believe. Secondly, to reveal mankind's irresponsible depravity. Now get this. You left a tribulation where, where Satan wreaked hell on earth. I mean, he, there, it was hell on earth, the tribulation. This is what you get when Satan rules. That's tribulation. This is what the world looks like when Satan is in authority and the church has been taken out of it. And then you get a thousand years where Christ is ruling and reigning with his church in peace and joy and righteousness and justice and, and truth and there is no deception. And Satan is released from prison and finds mankind willing and ready to rebel against the rule of God in their life. And so, and so what is this all about? Listen, this is what it's about. We, not, not one person in this room this morning will ever be able to blame the devil for your choice. Nobody. And I know we like to say that. In fact, I think we give the devil credit for a lot of things. We just need to own ourselves. He may attack you. He may tempt you. He may lie to you and deceive you. But you bought it. But you took the bait. But you ate it hook, line, and sinker. And I'm going to be honest with you. Nine times out of ten, we do just like Adam did. We go into this thing with our eyes wide open, knowing full well what God said and what God meant. We do it anyway. So this thousand-year reign, we got not just... Not just Christ sitting in the throne of heaven. We got Christ ruling and reigning on earth. Mankind has seen him, experienced him. They ain't even got to exercise any faith right here because he's visible, actual, real in their presence. All they got to do uh, is, is that know that what he says is true and obey that what he says. But when Satan comes, there's this little, you know, we want to throw God's rule off of our life. Maybe this is our chance. We want to do things on our own terms. And so I think that ultimately this, this is God showing us mankind is completely irresponsible and depraved. And then the third thing is this. To reveal Christ's irreplaceable grace. I'm, I'm going to say this as clearly as I can say it to you this morning. There is nobody good without Christ ruling and reigning in their hearts. Nobody. Nobody. Mankind will never be good without Jesus. He's got to rule and reign in here. He's got to rule and reign in here. You, listen to me, you can't rule and reign in here. Satan can't rule and reign in here. If you rule and reign in here, Satan rules and reigns in here, guess what you're going to get? More wicked, more evil, more deception, more self-centeredness, um, less peace, less joy, less righteousness. That's all you're going to get without Jesus. But if Jesus is ruling and reigning, 
on your heart. You get peace. You get joy. You get truth. You get righteousness. You get all those things. You manifest the fruit of the Spirit growing in your life, being manifested in your life. So, so I'm going to close with, with this statement. This, to, I, want, I want you to understand, this is, what I, this is really what I believe the millennial kingdom is all about. This is a simple truth. But I believe that the kingdom of Christ on earth begins in every human being's heart. That is one willingly and humbly placing himself or herself at his feet in faith, in love, and obedience. And when you do that, that makes you fit, able, and worthy to reign with him and rule with him over all of his creation. But until you do that, you are not fit, able, or worthy to rule and reign with him forever. So what's Jesus doing? He's building his kingdom. And I want to tell you something. He's doing that now. He's doing that right now in this building, in your heart, in my heart, in our hearts. He's preparing us to be fit, able, and worthy to rule and reign with him for all eternity. But that choice is still ours. It's that whole willingness to be humble and to bend ourselves under his authority. And, and, and I, I'm going to preach this until he comes. I get frustrated with this theology out there now. I posted the lyrics to a song yesterday. I heard it two or three times on the radio. Um, and, and I don't always listen to, I listen to some secular music. You can stone me if you want to. But it was just on Country Ready and I didn't change the channel yesterday. That whole business give heaven some hell. That's crazy. That's insane. But there's a line in that song that basically says, um, I was there the day that he raised his hand and prayed a prayer. But there wasn't no change whatsoever in his life. Now, I'm, I'm telling you, that's what the song's saying. He raised his hand. They sang just as I am. He raised his hands, praised his, prayed a prayer, and went right back out and lived his life the same way he always lived. That ain't salvation, folks. That ain't. You ain't submitted yourself to Christ. The Bible says that if you confess the Lord Jesus Christ, it is the, the whole lordship business is the key to this salvation. That's where repentance comes from. I've been doing it my way, and I've been getting what my way brings me, which is just more deception, more destruction. Uh, and, and as long as I'm doing it my way, I'm never going to succeed. And as long as I'm doing it my way, I'm never going to be fit, able, or worthy to rule and reign with you forever or have a place in your kingdom. But when I come to you and lay myself down at your feet and say, Jesus, I, I need you to not only forgive me of my sins, but to be the Lord of my life to give me my direction, to give me my purpose, uh, to give me your spirit so that I can be your representative in this world. Then, salvation has come to you. Amen. Old Zacchaeus was a crook. Crooked tax collector. Jesus looked up in the tree and said, Zacchaeus, I'm going to your house today. Zacchaeus went, he went home. And what happened to Zacchaeus that day is, 
in the, in the middle of that, he is so overjoyed that Jesus had come to his house. He said, you know what, everything I've ever cheated everybody out of, I'm going to give back to him and more. What Jesus says, Zacchaeus, that boy got saved. Salvation has come to this house today. Why? Because Zacchaeus submitted every part of his life to Jesus and said, it's yours. I'm here to tell you this morning, it ain't just about raising your hand. It ain't just about praying a prayer. Now, I don't, I don't, I don't have a problem with people praying a prayer. I, you know, I have people all the time, where do we start? And I said a prayer would be a good place to start. But in the midst of that prayer, here's what that prayer needs to say. Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. In every sense of the word, I'm a sinner. And I can't save myself. I'll never save myself. And I need you to first of all forgive me of my sin. Because I owe that debt. You paid the price for it. And I'm asking you to apply your blood to my sin debt. And the second part of that prayer is, I surrender to you everything that I am. I give you my life to be used for your glory. Be Lord of my life. If that prayer don't include that in all sincerity, then that seed hadn't taken any root in your heart that's going to bring forth any fruit that proves your salvation. It just ain't. Where you at this morning? Jesus is building his kingdom. He wants to build it right now. He wants to put another brick in the wall. Another name in the book. That you belong to him. And, and, and from that point forward, he will begin a work in you that will make you fit, able, and worthy to be a part of that eternal kingdom. We're going to read about that. I'm going to try to cover it in one sermon. I don't know if I'm going to be able to. Chapter 21 and 22. But you got to make that choice now. Let's stand together as our musicians come. Lord, I thank you for your word. I know that this is not an easy passage or concept for us to wrap our minds around, but there's a lot of other things that are same thing is true of. God, I pray that your word has been preached with enough clarity that they can that, that the hearers can not just hear it with the ear, but understand it and believe it. I don't know all the particulars of it. I'm not going to pretend to. I just know that this interpretation helps me make a, a lot of sense out of a whole bunch of other passages in the Scripture that would make no sense otherwise. A thousand years in your dispensation, I don't know what the right word is. A thousand years to you, your word says it's just like a day. Eternity. You existed from eternity. No, no beginning and no end. And, and those who trust you will have no end. I, I pray, God, that you would um, just work in this invitation. 
There's never a time that I stand behind this pulpit that I don't feel like I fall short in some way. But what your word promised to the Apostle Paul, I want to claim that this morning, that your grace is sufficient and that your strength is made perfect in weakness and that you do choose to save people by the foolishness of preaching. So I pray you take my foolish attempt at expounding upon your word this morning and making it plain and use it for your glory. If there's somebody here this morning that's not saved, somebody with a false assurance of salvation, which frightens me to no end, that somebody could stand in your presence and say, Lord, and you would say, depart from me, I never knew you. I pray every person under the sound of my voice in this building this morning, even those that might be watching online, God, if they, if they don't have a real, authentic relationship with Jesus as Savior and Lord, that right now, today, would be their day of salvation. Add your blessing to this invitation. And we'll praise you for what you do. In Jesus' name, amen.